0: Good morning, afternoon, and evening, listeners. Welcome back to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's School Podcast. I'm Major Laura Kwako and I'm your host for this podcast. Now, I have two special episodes for you all. So this episode and the next episode that I publish are related to Russia. I had the pleasure of sitting down with two experts. The first is Dr. Andy Aiken, who is a National Security Studies professor at Air Command and Staff College here at Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama, and he has extensive personal and professional experience in Russian studies. And also in the conversation was Lieutenant Colonel Sandra O'Hearn, who's a Reserve Judge Advocate with a lot of operational law experience um, in the deployed, overseas, and home station environment. And in her civilian capacity, she works for the Institute for Security Governance. So for the first episode, it's going to be more so the historical background and context of Russia. And then we'll get more specifically into the background between Russia and Ukraine and that relationship. And then in the second episode, we take more of a legal shift, and you're going to hear a lot from Lieutenant Colonel O'Hearn talking about things like law of war, hybrid warfare, malign legal operations. And both of them will um, do some actual application with real life examples. So very interesting conversations. But before we move on to the interviews, one thing I want to point out, and, and because I'm a lawyer, yes, we love our disclaimers, and I've got my disclaimer at the end of the episode, but I just want to point out that this is a purely academic discussion based on open source information so anything discussed by the guests of the show or me as the host are not the views of department of defense the air force any of its agencies nor the organizations that our guest speakers work for so without further ado i'm going to turn it over to the first part of the interview where experts discuss the historical background of russia and the russia ukraine relationship enjoy All right. So Lieutenant Colonel O'Hearn and Dr. Aiken, thank you so much for joining us today again. Before we get started, I'd like to give you all the opportunity to just introduce yourselves, get a little bit of your background in um, national security studies for you, Dr. Aiken, and then operational law for you, uh, Lieutenant Colonel O'Hearn. So, Dr. Aiken, over to you, sir.
1: Well, thank you so much for the invitation to join you uh, this afternoon. It's a beautiful day here in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, I'm glad to be able to talk about Russia. So I actually grew up here in Montgomery uh, and have come back now twice Uh, I had a a strange fascination with the Cold War as a child, especially living this close to uh, a kind of a key training and education center for the military. And and that evolved into uh, much wider and broader conversations and questions about international politics and national security studies. So I... Uh, began to study the Russian language as a freshman at Wabash College in Indiana. Uh, and then after two years, I was able to spend a full year in Russia studying as undergraduate in uh, Irkutsk, Siberia for the fall, and then later in Moscow for the spring and summer. Uh, and then uh, came back to uh, the South, and got a master's degree from Troy University International Relations, and then moved to the University of Alabama uh, to begin my my PhD work. and about halfway through, I was uh, awarded a short-term Fulbright fellowship called the Fulbright Hayes to return to uh, Russia for a summer where I studied for about eight weeks at the School of Higher Economics uh, uh, in the summer of 2007, which was uh, just a phenomenal experience. And then when I finished my PhD, uh, the the prospects for Russian studies specialists were relatively low, but shortly afterwards uh, the Crimean incursion, uh, occurred and, and there was all of a sudden a renewed interest in Russia as a security issue. Uh, and so I ended up back in Montgomery working for Air University shortly thereafter.
0: Wow, sir. I have to ask you, what was it like living in Russia?
1: I had a phenomenal time. I, I really enjoyed myself, um, You know, this was still pre everyone has a cell phone age. Um, And so the life of a student in Russia was um, was fun. I lived with uh, an exclusively Russian speaking host family. Uh, We went to school with the equivalent of of Russia as a foreign language kind of curriculum. So most of our teachers would not speak to us in English, even if they could. And, And we did full immersion. So I joined the Irkutsk State University boxing team because I wanted to learn how to box. Uh, and, and that was a good time. And then I'm also a, a classical cellist. And so I was able to uh, borrow an instrument from one of the cellists at the Irkutsk uh, Symphony. And I was able to to take some lessons and do some playing uh, as well. And then when I moved to Moscow, I was living in, in the center of the city uh, the Bolshoi Theater was about a 10-minute walk one direction. The Moscow Conservatory was about a 10-minute walk the other direction. Uh, the campus where I was uh, going to school actually had, had a number of buildings all over the city. So once a week, we had to run through Red Square uh, in order to get to class on time because of the the commute schedule is relatively tight between classes so i was literally walking through through red square and the kremlin at least you know three times a week and uh and just being in the middle of all of that history and political tension um but the russians were very welcoming they were very, very warm um, they were very friendly and that is in stark contrast to a lot of, of what we even see now kind of with the assumptions for how russians behave
0: Wow, I bet those were really interesting experiences. Uh, did you get to do any jobs or internships while you were there?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. I did. So the summer I was in Moscow, so the summer of 2001, I actually interned uh, with the journalism department at Moscow State University, uh, working on a project on media law and human rights. So we were doing some translation work for from uh, Russian to English for some media law journals. Uh, and and I got to meet some pretty interesting people through that.
0: That's really interesting. I might actually have a question for you later on that. But before I get too into the weeds, Lieutenant Colonel O'Hearn, could you please introduce yourself?
2: Uh, yes, of course. And uh, thank you as well for the invite. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to join this podcast. And um, also very interesting to hear Doctor Aiken's background. It's fascinating, and I have to say, I'm a little bit envious. Um, As for myself, uh, I am um, currently a reserve uh, Air Force judge advocate, uh, assigned to the uh, International and Operational Law Directorate at the Headquarters Air Force, and uh, was formerly active duty, so I'm at about 20 years now. with uh, really a focus, kind of an intentional focus on international and operational law, uh, but certainly didn't start out that way. I kind of uh, you know, really tried to work my way into those fields uh, by taking on, you know as many as opportunities as I was able to um, to include um, deployments at the Air Operations Center at uh, Tyndall with Northcom NORAD. Uh, as well as um, a deployment to Afghanistan, working rule of law issues uh, as the team chief in uh, Kandahar Province, and then uh, working at Air Force's Southern Twelfth uh, Air Force at Davis Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona, with uh, you know being able to work closely with uh, partners in uh, Central and South America. That was uh, previously, and then more recently being able to be assigned uh, to JAO has has given additional opportunities uh, for advancing, you know, my Air Force work in the International Operational Law Division. Uh, also prior to JAO, I worked at um, Fifth Air Force and U.S. Forces Japan at Yokota Air Base and was also to work with able to work with Japanese partners with the uh, Japanese Air Self-Defense Force. So that was really fascinating work as well. Um, On the civilian side, uh, currently I work with the Institute for Security Governance, which is an activity within uh, the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, specifically Defense Security Cooperation University or DSCU. Uh, My primary focus area is building Uh, Institutional capacity with partners and allies, primarily in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, My portfolio currently does include Ukraine, Uh, but to back up a little bit on the civilian side, I've worked uh, in connection with Ukraine since 2018. Uh, Prior to working with ISG, or Institute for Security Governance, I worked for the Defense Institute for International Legal Studies, or DILS, working legal capacity building In that same region with a very similar portfolio to include uh, Ukraine, so very interesting work for me, at least, Um, and really has helped me pursue kind of this area that uh, I've always been interested in. To back up, I certainly don't have the extensive background that Dr. Aiken does in in the earlier years, but I had taken uh, two years of Russian in undergrad at Marquette University, and and that really sparked my interest. Uh, And I was focusing on international relations and majoring in German. That major did require I take another language, and Russian happened to make sense to me. Uh, Prior to entering or starting at Marquette, I had uh, attended... High school on an exchange in Berlin, and this was shortly after the wall fell. So it very much still had that East Germany, and then the different uh, sectors of Berlin still very much in place, even though the wall had come down by that point. Uh, And I would say that was probably also a very interesting um, time, and and really kind of sparked my interest in the region as far as just international affairs in general. I had grown up overseas, um, so I always been around kind of an international community. Uh, A lot of parents of of friends were uh, part of the diplomatic corps or worked for um, international companies. So just being exposed to that sort of throughout my life, um, I feel kind of really set set me on this path to where I am today. And um, I, I think I couldn't be happier to sort of be working in my dream job on both the Air Force
0: side and my civilian side. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. I'm very excited for the conversation we're going to have today. Um, I'm thinking you all are going to teach me a lot here. So um, Dr. Aiken, I want to ask you, what have been your more recent experiences related to Russian studies?
1: Well, about two years ago, uh, through uh, Air University and the Office of Sponsored Programs, Uh, I was able to set up a year long joint elective uh, with called the Russian Research Task Force. And we have been able to partner with uh, the Russian Strategic Initiative at UConn and some other folks to to do a year long research focused uh, effort at questions related to uh, Russia and international security. So that has taken us on kind of a whirlwind tour of uh, we've been able to present our work at conferences Uh, We have an active website through the AU portal on uh, research on questions that are are very relevant and active right now. And then in the last year, I have been particularly busy. Uh, I have been asked to do an awful lot of uh, speaking and teaching. Uh, And I'm now beginning to roll into some research projects based on the 2022 uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine.
0: Well, it sounds like they've been keeping you pretty busy, sir. So... One thing I wanted to talk about, you know, as we're talking about Russia's background, and I think this is going to be important um, to kind of flesh out our understanding of of that background, is their national security strategy. But before we get there, can you first tell our listeners what is a national security strategy?
1: Sure. So most states uh, in the world with significant military capabilities Uh, We'll use a variety of signaling instruments to let their neighbors, the international community, um, international institutions have some idea of what their intentions are, whether it's what their defense concerns are, uh, whether it's what their intention for operational activities might be. Uh, what they're gonna focus on. And one of these is a national security strategy. Now, the United States, uh, the federal government, particularly the White House, the office of the president is required by law uh, to issue a national security strategy uh, basically upon entering the White House. So most uh, administrations will take a year to 18 months, but then it'll be produced and then also by statute, the uh, there is kind of a cascading effect for strategic security guidance that comes from that. So the United States National Security Strategy will come out first, uh, followed by the national defense strategy, followed by the national military strategy. Uh, and then cascading down, we'll usually see updated um, combatant commanders guidance, strategic guidance for their areas of concern. Uh, a variety of other countries, other states in the world sort of started following that track beginning in the 1990s. And so Russia, as the Soviet Union collapsed around it and inside of it even, uh, was faced with a particularly difficult set of circumstances uh, in terms of their security focus and outlook and capabilities. Uh, They still had this enormous nuclear arsenal, uh, but they did not have a direct threat, uh, a specific state they were trying to deter. Um, There was a lot of potential conflict around the the borders of the former Soviet states and within some of the former Soviet states that they were concerned about. Uh, And the Russians were also concerned about, uh, you know, their own border security and stability. So they began to issue national security strategies uh, in about 1993, 1994, and those strategies very much reflected the concerns of the day that uh, because Russia was in a weakened state, that they were concerned that. Other states might take advantage of them, that states might um, not live up to treaty obligations with the Russian Federation because of the um, the inability to enforce some of those treaty actions. And the Russians were also concerned about the treatment and status of ethnic Russians or Russian citizens who lived abroad, particularly in some of the former Soviet states. That messaging began to change in the early 2000s, shortly after Vladimir Putin became president of Russia, uh, first by sort of default when uh, uh, Boris Yeltsin named him as president on New Year's Eve 1999. And then after he began standing for election on his own beginning in the spring of 2000. So the first couple of, of of Vladimir Putin's national security strategies for the Russian Federation begin to build on some new and different themes. Uh, one is the theme that Russia, it has a long history of being a great power. Uh, it deserves to have that recognition and status uh, and is actively working to achieve that status again. Uh, the second is a narrative that Russia was taken advantage of uh, by particularly the West after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that the West, um, you know, especially the United States, have not been uh good partners, reliable partners on economics or trade issues uh, or or security concerns, either particularly the expansion of NATO is obviously a big concern of the Russians. And then in about 2015, the language in the Russian NSS began to shift dramatically. Uh, This is where we see the Russian state calling for a new kind of international security architecture and framework, one that is in stark contrast to what we refer to as the U.S.-led liberal international system, uh, which is essentially what the United States stepped into at the conclusion of the Second World War to rebuild uh, Europe and to create a security framework and an alliance structure um, to to particularly provide stability and security in the North Atlantic. The Russians now have asked and are Uh, Advocating for what they call a a polycentric world order, uh, which is far more amoral in terms of leadership or governmental structure so that. Russian authoritarianism is no better than American democracy or or the the Chinese um, economic system is no better or worse than um, any of the the world trade organizations or the um, the international trade system that the United States and its partners have set up. And then the most recent national security strategy that they released in 2021. First of all, they only released it in Russian. Uh, which is a signal by itself that the Russians are far less interested in actually cooperating with the international community as seen as being led by the United States than ever before. And it downs on, doubles down on some of these themes of, of what Russia is concerned about, uh, the grievances they're airing, uh, and then their intent to build up a strong nuclear deterrence, a strong conventional force, uh, and and move into that perception and role as um, a great power player uh, in an equal footing with with other great power players in the system.
0: So prior iterations were actually released in English and the most recent one was not.
1: Yeah, they're, they're usually released in Russian and English tangentially. Um, and then this one, this last one was only in in Russian.
0: So it sounds like there were a lot of changes that were made in the past couple iterations. What do you think sparked those?
1: Well, I think a great deal of that had to do with uh, Vladimir Putin personally coming into power, um, in envisioning himself as sort of the inheritor of the great Russian Empire, uh, the status of Russia as a great power, and then working in stages to try and return Russia to that that degree of uh, respect and credibility um, within the international system or international frameworks.
0: Right. And, and one other thing that I wanted to uh, have you discuss that you and I kind of chatted about previously um, was was a time when things were a bit different, when our interests were aligned a little bit more. You know, we were really focused on terrorism. Can you talk to that a little bit?
1: Sure. So one of the other aspects of, of the U.S. relation, Russian relationship and and even reflected in some of Russia's strategic documents, strategic security documents, Um for many years there was still an inkling that the US and Russia could partner on a variety of uh uh concerns or issues that equally affected both both parties uh, and one of those was clearly terrorism uh putin was one of the first world leaders to call um president uh george h w bush and offer his condolences and also his assistance after 911 um we had that a uh, s- series of meetings and the kind of uh, dialogue in the media of of Bush looking into Putin, Putin's eyes and seeing his soul and and all of this collaboration. And to a large degree, um, the United States and partners did work very heavily with the Russia and Russian Federation um, over um, security issues in Central Asia. Um, the Russians were were pretty good partners with overflight and base accessing. Uh, and the help with Afghanistan, um, that began to shift a little bit when we moved towards the 2003 Iraq invasion. And I think we're going to come back to this conversation a little bit later. But one of the tactics the Russians use uh, in opposition to the United States is, is a whataboutism kind of uh, kind of approach. And the 2003 Iraq invasion was a particularly highlighted example of that, wherein the United States levels a great deal of criticism appropriately at Russia for not abiding by uh, norms and standards of either the international system or international organizations. Everyone uh, uh, belongs to and in the United States, normally asking for consensus in institutions such as, you know, um, the UN Security Council, the broader United Nations uh, General Assembly, uh, and then some of the other um uh, security and economic systems, uh, including NATO and, and and related ideas. And in Iraq, because the United States did not have uh, UN uh, Security Council approval to initiate that conflict, the Russians were deeply um, upset by the fact that the United States was willing to essentially take on a unilateral security action with virtually no international repercussions. Uh, when had Russia done something similar, uh, there was widespread condemnation. so that that was a a turning point in uh, the u s particularly in the Putin relationship with the United States.
0: yeah, that's really interesting to kind of hear that perspective of of where some things may have changed. Um, but I kind of want to shift gears here and and ask you, from your experience living there in Russia, you know your studies there, what do you know about the people like how do they feel about the government to your knowledge
1: that's that's a great question so the russian people have a very long history of being um, critical of their government um, but very accepting of people uh, but also very fatalistic and even cynical towards, uh, the agency they have as citizens of a, of a country. So what I mean by that is, um, Russians do vote. Um, but most of the time they're very, uh, cynical about whether or not their vote will even be counted, uh, if not, you know, manipulated. Um, so, so there's just very little, um, Strong political culture inside russia as 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 opposed to sort of the participatory culture that we have in the United States, and that leads to a variety of unusual outcomes and behaviors so on the one hand, um, the Russians have very little sort of faith and trust in their government, although Putin remains fairly popular. Um, the Russians also have this deep sense of history. Uh, And to a lot of even normal middle class Russians, the the conflict in Ukraine right now might be uh, bad, but it also is is necessary to reunite uh, ancestral and um, and and the nation of Ukraine with Russia where it belongs. So there's a surprising amount of at least tacit support of of uh, of Russia's operations. There is also uh, an increased crackdown on any dissent. Um, And there is also um, some degree of of uh, of knowledge in terms of the Russian government has tried very hard and done a particularly good job of squelching uh, free media and and open reporting in Russia. Um, Russians still can access a great deal of international media because the Russian firewall is far weaker than China's. Um, So you have this mix of on the one hand, uh, Russians can be informed if they choose to be. Um, they are you know, largely fatalistic and non-responsive, um, but there's also this sort of baseline of, of, yeah, Ukraine someday has to be part of Russia again. So there's a little bit of support for what we're seeing.
0: So you brought up this crackdown of dissent in the media. How historically has the media been in Russia? Was it always cracked down? Was it
1: open? Yeah. So there are several kind of long historical iterations of this um, in the. You know, early to late 19th century, as print media became more um, just universally accessible, uh, the czarist government did take steps to censor, um, particularly newspapers, Um, and then uh, later on crack down on on more media reporting. Um, Interestingly, one of the conditions uh, that was around by the time of the Russian Revolution was uh, the free. The, the press had had its restrictions lifted a good bit. Similarly, in the uh, early to mid 1980s, uh, President uh, uh, Secretary Gorbachev also enacted a couple of reforms. One of which was uh, Glasnost, which was openness, uh, which allowed. Uh, A lot of freedom of of media to report on conditions and activities that they never would have been allowed to report on in the past in terms of the impact of Soviet policies, um, uh, opposition narratives to Soviet um, government uh, policies and and a variety of other of the things. And and again, that was uh, a precursor to the collapse of the Soviet Union, Uh, the Russian Constitution in 1993 does guarantee a great deal of freedom of the press. Um, but Putin has been able to pretty masterfully um, claw back that in, in a number of, of very fascinating ways, one of which was uh, most of the uh, media moguls who owned a great deal of either broadcast or print media uh, were systematically accused of things like uh, fraud or or uh, tax evasion and forced uh, one way or another to to sell their media empires back to the russian state wow and as the sole owner of these uh media companies they had pretty much Full control over what was broadcast, so so that has been one way. And then in the last year, um, the Russian government has taken steps, pretty draconian steps, to prevent um, even foreign media outlets from operating effectively inside of the Russian Federation to the degree that you know even outlets like the the New York Times, which has had a bureau in Moscow for probably a century. Uh, was forced to close down and leave because they ran the risk of of um, of even their reporters being criminally prosecuted uh, for reporting of the standards that they they normally live up to.
0: Wow. And so when you were doing your journalism internship, how was it then?
1: There was a sense of um, cautious optimism at the time. There had begun to be a shift because so by the time I was working there, some of the very large media companies had been privatized. They were in the hands of of a relatively small number of of individuals, uh, most of which had a pretty good relationship with Putin. So there was some concern that uh, media stories that were unfavorable towards the Russian government are going to be given an awful lot of very light treatment. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there was a series of laws that were uh, allowing for more journalistic freedom, uh, more access to digital media. Uh, so, so again, kind of cautious optimism at the time. Uh, but within about four or five years, that turned to a, a lot of cynicism when, when a lot of the the government crackdowns began again.
0: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting how you know the media is treated differently elsewhere in the States, of course, we're used to the Constitution, First Amendment, all of that. Um, But to hear it being treated differently in Russia is just really interesting. So now, you know, I'd like to switch gears and move more specifically for those of us who haven't been following closely or feel like we can't. Um, I know history can be pretty daunting because it's like, well, if I haven't paid attention for the past two decades, how can I catch up now? But for our listeners, I'd like for them to get a bigger picture, a bigger background and closer understanding of what's been going on between Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, that's that's a hot topic right now. So, Lieutenant Colonel O'Hearn, can you start off by providing some some background from your knowledge between Russia, Ukraine, that relationship? Um,
2: Yeah, I I think Dr. Aiken really gave uh, some some really good background on sort of these larger historical arcs uh, in Russia that are so important um, to understanding the Ukrainian context that we see today. And again, I just want to um, uh, step out here and just say, I, I want to reiterate that anything that I'm saying is not intended as any official view of Uh, the DOD or the Air Force or uh, the agency I work for. Um, And certainly I I would try to avoid um, any commentary on sort of the U.S. stance or position on any of this. Uh, So just with that caveat moving forward, um, I'd like to just highlight a, a few points just historically as it relates to Russia long term and then more of the near term of what's been happening, sort of the road to crisis that has led us uh, to where we're at right now with Ukraine. Um, So, you know, going back to, uh, you know, really back centuries Uh, there's a lot of historical context here related to uh, Ukraine and Ukraine as it relates to Russia. And um, particularly in the past uh, couple hundred years, when we're talking about Tsarist Russia and the Russian empire, there really was a concerted effort to russify the Ukrainian region or, or make them more Russian. Uh, And uh, it's really interesting if anyone's interested or has the time, there was a fascinating essay that Putin published and it's on the available in English on the Kremlin website, uh, published back, I think, in July of 2021, where he talks through some of this Russian um, view of of what Ukraine is and what it means to them. But really, it goes back much further, like I said, back to uh, really dating back to the Russian empire. But there's a very complex history, even um, dating before then. Uh, certainly not enough time here in this podcast to cover. So, uh, you know, my apologies if this is overly brief, but Um, Following this this period of the Russian Empire um, up until 1917, when we see the Russian Revolution, you had seen this concerted effort of Russification in in the Ukrainian region Uh, in 1917. We saw this sort of short bid for independence. Uh, on the heels of the Russian Revolution, where there was the Ukrainian People's Republic, but that was very short-lived. By the time the USSR uh, came to be in 1922, uh, Ukraine had been subsumed. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the problems did not end there. Uh, there was uh, the, the, this forced Russification continued on uh, during Stalin's era. Uh, We saw what was called the Holodomor, which is the um, forced famine, essentially, that occurred in the early 1930s, uh, where essentially the Ukraine region was forced into uh, a famine state with, uh, you know, food and and necessities withheld from the Ukrainian people. Uh, And then, of course, by the... uh, fall of the uh, Soviet Union, we see Ru- Ukraine declare independence as its own country. Um, and I think understanding this uh, this history and understanding Ukrainian nationalism and their sense of independence is key to grasping what's going on right now. Um, when you look back to that, the essay I mentioned that that Putin had written um, back in uh, 2021 In the way he describes it, uh, Ukraine never really existed of its own, you know, sovereignty or or as its own state. Um, It was uh, an entity within the Soviet Union, but it was really invented by Soviet leaders within the Soviet Union, and it really uh, is and has always been a part of Russian territory, as as Dr. Aiken had. uh, talked about. So uh, he also goes on to talk about how there's this sort of triune of um, what he considers Russian people, or or the rush, the larger Russian imperium, and that would be uh, Russians as we know it in in the Russian Federation today, um, Ukrainians and Belorussians, and then the three of them sort of constitute this uh, Russian entity. And and this desire to return to that Russian imperium, which really, if you read closely, is not just what the Soviet Union was, because when you look at the broader Russian empire prior to the USSR, it was considerably larger. And he actually blames um, Soviet leaders somewhat for uh, the uh, USSR and, and the, the that Russian empire being chipped away. Um, so what, one of the other points that's really interesting that plays into what we're seeing now is uh Putin asserts that Ukraine's bid for independence occurred during there was this bid for independence that occurred during World War II during periods of German occupation, uh specifically in 1941 and 1944, where he argues uh you know Ukrainian independence fighters aligned themselves with the Nazis. Um Although somewhat true, he sort of uses this narrative to support actions today. Um, The uh, Ukrainian independence fighters at that time had sort of seen the Nazis as um, their, and this was a very small minority, mind you. Uh, see the saw the Nazis as as sort of saviors and seeing them as saving them from the Soviet oppression. And as I mentioned previously, it was is pretty egregious oppression they were dealing with. Um, So, again, Putin uses this as sort of a form, a very effective form of disinformation uh, to characterize uh, the it, it, what's going on with Ukraine and why there's a need for Russia to sort of save the people uh, and demilitarize and denazify the people. It's it's a bit of a stretch, perhaps to outsiders. Uh, you know, arguably, when you when you read reports on this, that uh, that rationale is a bit of a stretch. But it's certainly something that is used, and um, from all reports, appears to be quite uh, effective at uh convincing the the Russian people for for why this is sort of a a valid and noble um effort on their part with the the invasion of Ukraine. Um to to step away a little bit from that if 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 it's okay, I'd like to talk a little bit more of kind of the immediate um events that leading up to where we're at right now sort of skipping past a you know, decades of of Soviet rule, although certainly a lot of these area, there's a lot of um, incidents and and things that
0: occur that that uh, affect where we're at now. Sure. That sounds like it'd be wonderful. But I've got a quick question. So what do we know of how the Ukrainian people felt of that Russian argument you were just talking about, about the denazification?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, it's not true. I mean, it's 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 almost laughable. It was um, if you read news reports, it's it's interesting because while uh, Putin sort of goes into great detail in his essay, as well as speeches he's given in response to that essay, current uh, uh, president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky replied in, in effect. I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, oh, clearly Putin uh, has a lot of time on his hands essentially to be uh, putting together this sort of um very outlandish rationale so for all intents and purposes they, there's not a lot to or or anything really to support uh in in there's been some allegations on the from the Russian um government and and again this is to really separate the Russian people from the Russian government uh but there's been uh uh, there's been some uh, allegations that there's these neo-Nazi uh, leaders, supporters of of uh, the the former the former what they view as Nazi heroes from early times in in Ukraine and their early bid for independence in World War II. Uh, but from what I read, really, no. Uh, everyone agrees that there's really nothing to support that. Uh, so I think that's sort of the the response on the Ukrainian side. Um, and this is also notwithstanding, there is obviously a large uh, Russian ethnic population in Ukraine as well.
1: Uh, yeah, if I could, I wanted to actually kind of amplify and uh, and 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 go back and add a few things that are amazing from from what you said. So one is. Is yes, the Russians were actually they were desperate to try and Russify all of these areas. As, as you mentioned, the great irony with this, of course, is that if we go back even further in history, um, Kiev is is understood to be the first Slavic settlement, um, and and so what what then was the land of the Rus, and then it became Russia. You know, emanated from you know engagements with those Slavic settlements. So. In a very real way, uh, what is the the irony to point out here is that Ukraine probably has much more of a historical claim uh, to Russia than Russia ever did uh, on Ukraine. (laughs) And then also there are at least two other. Uh, entities that have had territorial claims on both Moscow and and uh, Kiev in the past, of course, the Mongol Empire and even the Polish-Lithuanian principalities. Uh, But you don't see either of those entities uh, trying to exercise uh, the current value of those historical territorial claims, which is, uh, you know, it just adds to, as you said, the ridiculousness of Putin's um, argument. Uh, The other thing that, that that comes up is this is is how putin has reinterpreted what ukraine is and is absolutely right um the soviets came up with this system. It's called the ethno-federal system, where uh, according to some Russian demographers, uh, whether or not your sort of peoples, your nation, uh, met some, some criteria or threshold of uh, history or civilization, then you were granted a greater or lesser degree of autonomy within the Soviet system. And so, for example, you know the Georgians and the Ukrainians were, were given this status as Soviet socialist republics. Uh, The Chechens, however, were made subjects of the Russian Soviet Federal Socialist Republic and not given their own independence. Uh, And so it's interesting to see Putin looking backwards at the decision to actually grant uh, Ukraine this semi-independent, semi-autonomous status was was wrong. even though, again, he sees Belarus on the same plane and is not complaining about the fact that, that Belarus was was given the same territorial advantage. And uh, you will see a lot of symbolism uh, in a lot of Russian mythology and, and culture of, of this idea of the Troika or the Slavic Brotherhood, which is R- Russia, Belarus and Ukraine sort of united as one. Um, so, so, yeah, th- these are all very relevant things that we're seeing coming back right now.
2: Thank you, Dr. Aiken, And and I completely agree. There's we could go for hours on on just this historical context alone. And, you know, you bring up a really good point. I I think the saying is what Kiev is, is the mother of all Russian cities. Uh, So it it is it's a convenient sort of historical narrative that Putin certainly has created uh, and and fascinating at that. if I might, I'd like to touch on just a few key points that have kind of brought and I know Dr. Aiken has touched on them as well, but to highlight what uh, has kind of brought us to where we're at in Ukraine at the moment. Please do. Yes, ma'am. So if we're going to skip ahead and I know this this does not do it justice, but just for the sake of of time. Um, I'll skip forward to really when things um, started to heat up, at least for Ukraine, but certainly not for the region, because I think, you know, starting in the early 2000s, we, we really started to see a lot in the region with the color revolutions that occurred, which uh, Putin and the Kremlin have um, repeatedly stated that the, these were nothing more than interventions by the West, particularly the United States. Um, so can you explain that, what the, what those were for of, our listeners? Of, of course. I, I was actually, didn't want to get into too much detail, Just, but I, I absolutely can. The bottom um, line up front, ma'am. <laughs> absolutely. No, there's, uh, so we're seeing particularly in the, in the, uh, very late 1990s, early 2000s, you start to see these color revolutions, uh, throughout the region of the former Soviet union, um, with, Uh, well, in particular, you saw the orange revolution in, um, Ukraine, there was the tulip revolution in Georgia, I believe, and really a bunch of the velvet revolution. Uh, there's in the former Yugoslavia. So there was really a lot of, um, political uprising and, uh, civil unrest occurring and, uh, in, in uh, reaction to what was perceived as, um, you know, corruption and dissatisfaction with the government and, uh, with attempts to overthrow the administrations that were, um, in place at the time. So really kind of creating a, um, an environment of unrest throughout the region, uh, with, uh, and, and, and I don't know if Dr. Aiken has anything to add to this. He, he certainly has a the the historical context. I think is uh, from the academic perspective.
1: Yeah. The the only thing I'd add is is yeah the what what tended to spark these colored revolutions was in most of the former Soviet states the former communist leaders uh, turned themselves into. Uh, nationalist Democrats overnight uh, and then were able to run for office and still retain most of the power that they had when they were when they were communists and by the late 90s early 2000s uh, in in a number of these these states the public had gotten tired of the corruption and the um, the fraudulent elections that actually did occur and, and that was sort of the spark of really pushed um pushed a lot of these things to happen and, and yes moscow looked at all of these as coordinated deliberate and and set about by the united states as an intelligence operation
2: yeah exactly so you can see the the stage is sort of already set and and by this time of course putin is uh in in control of the kremlin so he's overseeing all of this uh you know going on now for about 22 years um So as far as uh, Ukraine and and what was happening in Ukraine, we see um, uh, really a lot of this dissatisfaction continuing on, a lot of the corruption, the old Soviet cronies uh, in, in control, and really it's not fooling the population in Ukraine or even elsewhere where some of this unrest was occurring um so one one of the kind of key flashpoints that happened more recently is is around the end of 2013 uh we see the euromaidan protests that occurred uh started to occur in um in in kyiv but in in uh ukraine overall and really this what was sparking this or what led up to this was the um President at the time, uh, who was aligned with uh, who was pro-Russian President Yanukovych. Uh, there was, uh, you know, any number of issues. There was um, reports on uh, egregious corruption. Uh, Ukraine had been moving towards wanting to join the EU. I know Dr. Aiken touched on this sort of NATO expansion. EU is another sort of perceived um threat or slight that, that Putin has, has been rankled by. Um, and there was this uh, bid to join the EU on the part of uh, Ukraine. And um, at the last minute or unexpectedly to the population, uh, the government, the Ukrainian government opted to not vote not not uh, vote for that. And that resulted in um, protests. And uh, while they were largely peaceful uh, by February of 2014, there was a violent crackdown uh, by of the protesters by the uh, President Yanukovych and his government. Um, Again, that was a pro-government or pro-Russian government in Ukraine. And um, some allegations that the crackdown was occurring um, in part by uh, um, troops or special police that were backed by Russia or even sent in from Russia. I won't speculate on all the, the background on that, but really turned into a flashpoint uh, for the the Ukrainian population. Um, uh, by February of 2014, President Yanukovych actually fled to Russia and there was a, a change of power in Kyiv. Uh, and in that same time frame, uh almost immediately thereafter is when Russia annexed the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea, uh, and and a lot can be said on that. It was uh there was sort of this sham referendum. There is uh, this notion from Russia that Crimea has always belonged to Russia, um, that the ethnic Russian population there was, you know, somehow being. um uh mistreated by by the Ukrainian um, government and that uh, Russia had a right to this uh, uh, to, to this geographic area. Um, this was not recognized by pretty much the entire international community, uh, with the exception of of a couple of uh, countries like Russia, North Korea, uh, you know, the who you'd usually expect to to uh, recognize that um we also see in the same year pro russian separatists in the eastern bon- Donbass region of ukraine uh and the then we see the self proclaimed republics of donetsk and lukansk in that region again this is an ethnically russian populated area and um this set off really what ha- what ended up being an ongoing conflict all the way up until uh today and up until that that invasion. I, I I highlight this because um I think a lot of people think the invasion of Ukraine that occurred um last year, last um February 24th, uh was somehow uh new or that that was just sort of the, the first uh, act of aggression. And I think I highlight these and in, in particularly this ongoing uh, conflict in the East Donbass region um, to show that this has been ongoing for years. And, and many people didn't realize or don't realize even today that Ukraine has been in conflict um, with Russia and the Russian separatists in the East uh, f- you know, for almost a decade. So this is not a new um,
0: issue that just sort of popped up in the last year. Right. Cause I know, you know, I certainly didn't see much about it in the media before February 24th.
2: Exactly. I I don't think it was covered that much. And I, unless you're someone who follows this, you're, you're naturally not going to know as much. So, you know, things just kind of escalated since then. Um, you see Ukraine voting uh, for a goal to join NATO by two, 2017 is when they had that vote. And by September 2020, current President uh, Zelensky confirmed that goal of NATO membership. And as Dr. Aiken accurately pointed out, that's always been a very um significant sensitive point for Russia is this notion of NATO expansion and NATO is expanding upon uh, and up to Russian borders. And and it's this act of provocation on the part of the West. And that's sort of the narrative that's, that's spun by the Kremlin and um, and, and really fed through the media to the the Russian population. Uh, So then by March of 2021, um, the Kremlin starts to build there. You see a lot of troop buildup on the Ukrainian border. Uh, and then December of 2021, Putin demands that NATO deny membership to Ukraine, which of course uh, did not happen. Uh, and then uh, 21 February, Putin recognizes the independence of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk in the Eastern region. And, um, just three days later on the 24th is when the evasion occurred uh, under this uh, purported uh, need for uh, self-defense and collective self-defense under article 51 of the uh, un charter uh, with with saying that those those newly recognized independent states uh, need this self-defense. Uh, from, from Russia, and that's what they were responding to. Again, we can go into a lot of discussion on how that narrative or how that um, rationale really doesn't hold water. But um, really, the, those are kind of some of the major events that took place, um, really leading us up to where we are now. Um, and I, a lot of questions that come up or, or that I encounter from from people who are just learning about this is you know, why this approach by Russia really doesn't seem to make sense. Why would they do this? It seems almost self-defeating. Um, they, it sort of alienates them from the rest of the international community to the extent that they almost become like this pariah. Uh, now we've seen all these sanctions being imposed. Why would uh, why would Russia take this approach to, to what end and why does it um, really help them in any way? And, and I think that really is to understand that is to really understand this Russian foreign policy and how they um, approach foreign policy. And it's not how we approach foreign policy or the or the majority of our, our allies and partners. So I think Dr. Akin touched on this. They have this obsession with being acknowledged as this great power um, and this need to um. Bring back the, the the Russian Empire to what it was, at, you know, back back in the day, and then also this sort of fixation on you know enemies and uh, NATO expansion, particularly between the nineteen ninety to two thousand fourteen um, period, and and how they had uh, increasingly encroached on what was believed to be sort of Russian um, on the on the Russian bordering areas. Um, and again, I think Dr. All, Dr. Aiken also pointed out that, uh, there's been these alternating periods of attraction and repulsion of, of, with the West working with the West and then not, not wanting, uh, anything to do with the West. So I'll, I'll kind of stop there, uh, and let, let you or Dr. Aiken jump in.
1: So uh, s- some, um, some kind of themes just, just to, to reiterate that I think are, are really important. Everything you said, uh, the issue with Ukraine in, in the 2013-2014 timeline, it, it, and this is you're absolutely correct, there was a sense and even demand amongst the responsive nature of of the politics of Ukraine that, that the state was going to move towards the West, you know, wanted to join Western institutions, uh, wanted to sort of cast its light with with the democratic West. And Russia, once again, operating under this narrative of the identity politics and Ukraine has to be part of Russia and has to be under their sphere of influence saw all these things begin to cascade and it just reinforced Putin's, um, Putin's problem. One, one of the other things that I'll point out is that <clears throat> this, this NATO as the boogeyman for Russia argument also loses a great deal of, um, explanatory power very, very quickly because, uh, Any study of alliances or alliance expansion will show you very quickly that if an alliance adds more members, uh, that in point of fact weakens the alliance for a good while, because now somebody has to pay for and deal with interoperability integration, moving more deterrent equipment in different places, managing how to bring in the polit- political aspect of all of these new members. So Putin knows this. So he knows that if, if you know, Ukraine, which probably wouldn't, but, but even if it did become part of NATO, NATO, or NATO would be in a substantially weaker position to actually act um, against Russia if anything occurred. But it plays very well in the domestic politics of russia particularly to nationalists and hardliners for putin and his inner cabal to be able to point to this as a direct threat to to russian security so
0: All right, listeners, that's all we have time for today. So now we've got some great background from Dr. Aiken and Lieutenant Colonel O'Hearn. So save that in your back pocket because we'll be back in the next episode playing the remainder of that conversation where we're going to dive more into some legal principles and concepts and talk about some real life examples that we've seen in this conflict. So until then, this podcast is in recess. Nothing from this show should be construed as
2: legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of its guest and host.